This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So today's topic is focusing on the genetics of gynecologic cancers, and one of the um, uh, things that you'll hear, we're going to hopefully not hit you over the head with it, but we're kind of planning to hit you over the head with it, um, (laughs) is the difference between the, the genetics that you are born with that may predispose you to a cancer and the genetics that end up in a cancer, the genes that end up in a cancer that predispose you to certain kinds of problems in that cancer that may inform uh, things that we do about your treatment. So there's um, there's some, and don't be offended by the fact that we are kind of planning to hit you over the head with this because it's the sort of thing that even physicians, as they are relearning a lot of this information, actually have to constantly remind ourselves of. Um, so it's an important um, an important difference that um, that we'll be talking about today. So I'm going to turn the very beginning of this kind of introduction over to Julie, just to kind of give you paint you sort of the outline for tonight. Julie is going to give you kind of an introduction. I'm going to talk about genetics in tumors, um, so not genetics in humans that predispose you to cancers, but genetics in the cancers themselves. And then we're going to introduce you to one of our patients who is seen here at UCSF, who, um, you know. Because cancers can affect families, uh, we thought it was important to bring into um, uh, into this lecture the experience of that. And um, Julie will round out the talk with a discussion of how genetics, uh, how she thinks about genetics in cancer with respect to the hereditary nature of it, and how her role in um, genetic counseling really affects how we are treating cancers these days. So, um, Julie, please. It's okay. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Um, so as Jocelyn said, we, although our title is Genetics of Gynecologic Cancers, we're really coming at it tonight from two different perspectives that definitely overlap with each other. Um, and I just wanted to start off by um, trying to set that up. And it will, some of it, I always like to start from the beginning, even though there may be some things that are obvious to some people or familiar to some people. There's usually a gap somewhere in there, and so I'm just going to kind of tell the whole story, so hopefully we're all um, looking at it the same way. Um, So the outline of today is just, as I said, to have that um, overview of how genetics underlies all types of cancers, and Jocelyn's going to talk more about um, what we sometimes call somatic, meaning in the body, um, or tumor genetics, so genetics of cancers. And I'll be talking about what we um, call germline, meaning things that can be passed down from generation to generation or inherited um, genetics. And we also, as Jocelyn mentioned, have um, a guest who can talk to us about really how this affects somebody very directly and personally in their lives. Um, So as I said, I'm going to start from the beginning, and there will be parts of this that are familiar to you, but again, wanting to make sure we're not skipping any steps here. Um, So... Back in the beginning, we all started off um, as one cell. So you get a sperm from the dad and an egg from the mom, and those come together into one cell. And inside that sperm, there's a set of genetic material from the dad, and inside that egg, there's a set of genetic material from the mom. Um, And that's what this um, slide is showing, is that one cell, and inside of the nucleus is all of this genetic information. And if you stretch out the genetic information, into those long strands, each there are sections called genes, and each of those genes is a set of instructions for something. So we tend to think of genes 
in terms of instructions for things we can see, like hair color and eye color and how tall you are, or in the case of me, how tall you're not. Um, but these genes also do a lot of things on the inside and control how our heart works, how our bones work. And the set of genes that Jocelyn and I will be talking about are genes that control how cells grow. So that first cell, the egg and sperm meet, is supposed to copy itself and then divide, copy itself and divide, and that's how you turn from one cell into a human being. Um, what happens as we go through life and start from one cell and those cells divide until you become a human being and then we become a full-grown person and we live out our adult lives is eventually, um, it happens to all of us, even you know, the perfectionists in the room, um, there can be mistakes that happen when a cell copies itself and divides. And the word that we use um, commonly to refer to those mistakes in the genetic code are mutations. So if there is a mistake that's made in the genetic code, and that gene, it's like making a spelling mistake in the instructions, that body can't use that gene anymore. Um, and when we say that cancer, all cancer is the result of accumulated mutations, and there are a set of genes um, some of them are called tumor suppressor genes, meaning they're normally there to help keep things from growing too fast. And if they break down, things can grow out of control. And there are things called oncogenes, which actually normally do tell our cells to grow. But if they break down, then they can tell them to grow even faster. So if any of these sort of cell genes that are important in controlling how things grow um, get mutations or get mistakes in them, um, they aren't giving the proper instructions to your body, and that's really the basis of cancer. As we grow through life, we get older, so some of this is the natural process of aging. We may get exposed to things like radiation or cigarette smoke that cause mutations in our genetic code. If enough of these build up, that's really the basis of cancer. I do want to mention, since this is mini medical school and we're, you know, you're here to kind of learn the newest um, <clears throat> The term mutation is still what we use commonly and I think is more familiar to people. If you go out there and start reading um, the current sort of, I guess it's politic politically correct in the genetics world, term you may see is a pathogenic variant. The concept being that there's lots of different forms of all of these genes and some of them can cause disease. So a mutation and a pathogenic variant is the same thing, but I think we'll mostly be using the term mutation. Um, so. As I said, as you go through life, we may accumulate mutations, and this is a picture that I thought was helpful in showing that. So, you know, we start off, most of us start off life having um, cells that are healthy and all of the genes are doing their job properly. Um, but as we get older or we're exposed to something, one of those cells may develop a mutation. And that cell can go on and still function, but if that one cell that has one mutation gets a second one and a third one and a fourth one, it may eventually um, kind of become so far from a normal cell that it becomes a cancer cell. Um, and what Jocelyn's going to talk to us about is the fact that if we understand what these specific mutations are and which genes are involved, that may tell us something about um, what's making that cancer grow and help us stop it from growing. Um, what I will be talking to you about is the fact that some people um, we are all different genetically, and some people in the genetic code that they were born with, so the sperm from the dad and the egg from the mom, um, actually have a mutation in one of these very important genes. Um, and that, again, does not cause cancer, having that one mutation. But those people, just like everyone else, will get older, will get exposed to things, and may accumulate additional mutations. Um, so again, these inherited mutations, having one inherited mutation doesn't cause cancer itself, but makes people more susceptible as those other things 
um, that happen to all of us um, happen as we go through life. And similarly, you know, understanding what those mutations are, what those genes do, can help us um, improve not just treatment of cancer, but actually help prevent cancer. Um, so again, Jocelyn said there will be some repetition, and there is, but this is really a key concept, which is still, I think, as she said, confusing to um, a lot of people who work in the field and a lot of people who are coming as students or as, as patients, um, that there are, um, all cancer is result, the result of mutations that happen as we go through life. For most people, all of those mutations happened after they were born. Um, and they're only present in a small group of cells, the cancer cells. And there are ways to test for that, which Jocelyn can talk about. Um, there's a smaller group of people who actually have inherited a mutation in a very important gene. And that is inherited from a parent, and it's actually present in their bodies head to toe. That itself doesn't cause cancer, but can put people in a higher risk group. And there are certain things that we want to know about and be able to act on. And so that is sort of the framework for what we'll be talking about tonight, and I'll let Jocelyn talk more about the tumor genetics, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a fantastic kind of introduction to how um, the major differences between um, germline um, hereditary cancers um, and how we think about hereditary cancer risk, and then the ways in which we're understanding how tumors um, themselves, the way we're understanding the unique genetic code of the tumor itself. Um, you know, and our genetic code is very complex. So um, I'll try to give you a simple overview of some of the concepts of how, um, so just to give you a framework, one of our most, which um, Julie will talk a, a, a bit more about um, in, the, in the second half of this talk, but one of our most common hereditary genes that we talk about is the BRCA gene. It's an inherited gene. Um, it gives, predisposes uh, families to breast and ovarian cancer, among other cancers. Um, and this was discovered in the 1990s, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Um, discovering that, that single gene took an enormous amount of work, enormous amount of work. And so since 1995, we'll call it, it was actually probably 94, but anyways, 95 till now, it has been a little over 20 years, um, now our facility to actually read that genetic code and understand the mutations, not just in a human being, but in a tumor, and not in any tumor, but in your tumor, or your tumor, or your tumor, has um, improved drastically. Um, and so um, a lot of what I want to just sort of paint the picture for you is one of, uh, some of the techniques that cancer doctors like myself are using to try to understand... Um, the vulnerabilities in cancer, these mutations, they help them grow. As we talked about last week, there's six things that cancers need to do in order to be able to grow and accumulate these mutations is one of them. Um, but um, it also presents an opportunity because it's they're vulnerable the, in this way. And so we may be able to attack these vulnerabilities when we actually understand the mutations that they have collected. So... Um, I'll present some of these comp uh, concepts and how they inter impact cancer care now and hopefully in the future. Um, so one idea I want to just um, give you a sense of is, you know, cancer is pretty complex and many behave uniquely. Um, and so no single blueprint reliably explains every single person's cancer. 
So we have started sequencing the genomes of cancer, which means that we can read all of those base pairs and all of that DNA in the cancer in every single cell. Um, and we've revealed that these cancers have hundreds or even thousands of these accumulated mutations. Um, the complexity of this data means that actually we have to use some pretty fancy computational techniques, computer algorithms, et cetera, um, to understand these cancers' vulnerabilities. One person's genetic code is the equivalent of 1.5 billion characters of text or 10 million tweets, which is, as um, you might imagine, an enormous amount of data, um, which means that you know, computers are actually becoming incredibly important in what we do. So in order to help you understand some of the ways research these days is leading to breakthroughs in gynecologic cancer in particular, but in cancer in general. Um, I always like to tell uh, some patient's stories, and you're going to hear another patient's story later on today, but um, this patient has given me permission to tell this story, and we published uh, the results of this work in um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Journal. So this is a picture of a woman. She has jaundice, which is yellow skin with yellow eyes, and skin and this results from blockage of the bile in her liver. This is um, in medical school world. This is a classic uh, presentation of pancreatic cancer or some other kind of very advanced liver disease. Um, so this 54-year-old young woman, she presented to the emergency room near her home outside of San Francisco in, in uh, 2013. She had this jaundice, as you see, a very poor appetite, and was losing weight. She had lost 20 pounds. Um, this is her CT, and it demonstrated pancreatic mass. So I know last week we talked about anatomy. And um, this is the coronal view of the CT. Um, so this organ here is her liver. We're actually not, the pelvic organs that we focused on a lot last week were down here. Um, this is the patient's liver. And this pancreas is, sits back here. It's a soft tissue that sits right below the stomach uh, towards your back. Um, and this... Um, uh, I think Dr. Chen made the joke about the positive arrow sign the radiologists like to use. So <laughs> when you see arrows on a CT scan, you know something is wrong there. Um, so this is a mass at the head of the pancreas. Um, this was biopsied and examined by her pathologist at um, both her hospital and at another academic institution in the Bay Area. And both of the pathologists agreed that she had a pancreatic cancer. So she was referred to UCSF for treatment of an advanced um, stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And this is a disease with a truly dismal prognosis. 1% uh, of patients um, survive more than five years with a diagnosis like this. Um, so the patient was seen at UCSF Medical Oncology, and a repeat CT scan uh, was ordered prior to initiating chemotherapy, which is pretty standard. Um, they call it a staging CT. It helps just delineate where. Remember we talked about staging last week. Staging for gynecologic cancers oftentimes is done with surgery. Um, for pancreatic cancer, it's done with a combination of examination and radiology. So this is her staging CT. Um, and actually, it showed evolving findings. So now, instead of just the pancreatic mass, she had this dark um, finding here around her liver. This represents fluid. It's called ascites. Um, she also had, which was not seen before, she had this um, mass down in her pelvis. Um, and this is actually a mass on her ovary. So because of this new ovarian mass, now it's very common for GI cancers to metastasize to ovaries. So this was not at all a slam dunk diagnosis of an ovarian cancer, for example. But our medical oncologist here at UCSF got concerned that he wanted to make sure that he agreed, that UCSF agreed with the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. So um, sent 
some additional biopsies for genetic t testing, actually. So we sequenced this patient's cancer. Um, and then he referred her to GYN oncology just so that we could also weigh in. Is there anything more that we can do to help figure out is this pancreas or is this uterine or ovarian cancer? Um, unfortunately, before the patient could be seen in our clinic, she became very ill and was admitted to the intensive care unit here at UCSF. Her lungs and her kidneys were failing because of her advanced cancer. Um, and uh, several of her results kind of came in during the time that she was in the intensive care unit. Um, and I had the opportunity to review this with a person who's called a computational biologist. And it was one of these aha moments for me in my um, career as a GYN oncologist where he looked at her combination of mutations and her tumor, and he said, she has ovarian cancer. And I... I just, I was sort of flabbergasted because this is the power, I'm going to show you kind of why he thought that, but this is the power of clinical genetics, which is, uh, of clinical genomics, we call it genomics when we're talking about tumors, um, which is that um, in cases where your, your standard um, evaluation and workup with your CTs and your biopsies, it's kind of, it's failing you, you're not quite sure exactly what you're treating, um, this PhD computational biologist who looks at tumor after tumor after tumor, at mutations of tumors from many different tumor types, he could look at the combination of mutations that she had and say, I'll bet you anything she's got ovarian cancer. And he was right. Um, so unfortunately, this diagnosis became clear. It was the end of her life. Um, however, despite her critical illness, so this woman um, was in the intensive care unit. She was the word we use is moribund. She was essentially in a coma. Um, and there is um, almost no oncologist who would have given her chemotherapy because it is, um, in, in the world of, of, of doctoring, you want to first do no harm. And someone who is so critically ill like that, the chance that you would give them chemotherapy and hasten their death is very high. Um, but after discussion with the ethics committee, I was involved with this case, the family strongly wanted her 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 to at least give, be given that chance. She was going to die anyways. She was only 50. Um, she had several young 20-year-old kids. And so um, after family meetings about the risks of getting chemotherapy to critically ill patients and then ethics committee consult, we gave her the smallest, tiniest dose of chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy is carboplatin, which um, is a drug that some ovarian cancers can be incredibly sensitive to this drug. And remarkably, a week after she received this tiny dose of chemotherapy, her organ failure reversed. She left the intensive care unit. She was eventually discharged home 57 days after she was admitted and received multiple lines of chemotherapy while she was in the hospital and getting better and better. And since then, she has completed chemotherapy. She got surgery to remove her residual tumor. Um, she got further chemotherapy after that. She has had a recurrence since then, but she is alive now three years after her initial diagnosis of ovarian cancer um, and enjoying the company of her children. And i got to tell you, one of the reasons why the GYN oncologist agreed to consider chemotherapy in this patient was revealed in her genetic code and related to her, the genetics of her tumor. And I'll, and I'll show you um, on these subsequent slides. So... As clinicians, we are always thinking in these unusual cases, wondering how we can do better. 
And one thing that you can think about is, you know, it took this patient two and a half months to get the correct diagnosis. Meanwhile, she's getting sicker and sicker. Um, and um, we were using our standard diagnostic tools in the regular way that we would. Um, if she was not cared for at UCSF, she would have died. Um, but not every patient can receive care at UCSF. So how do we um, generalize the treatment that we give here to treatments in the community? Um, it's not fair to assume that every pathologist, our pathologist here at UCSF sort of looked at the case and thought, well, I would have done this, that, and the other thing, and then I would have made the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. But it's not fair to think that everybody everywhere is going to have access to care as good as the specialty GYN pathologist here. Um, it's not an argument, in my mind, to say, well, if there's a really good guy who can read a chest X-ray, nobody should ever get a CT scan. No, we should get CT scans sometimes because CT scans are better than chest X-rays. Similarly, um, if um, looking in the genetics of the tumor helps us understand more quickly that this woman had an ovarian cancer, not pancreatic cancer, um, we should be thinking about doing that. Um, so... To understand the possibilities in, that genomic medicine holds for revolution cancer cal, we should just talk a little bit about the breakthroughs. So this is a funny cartoon, Breakthrough in the Human Genome Project. They're making a big joke. Eureka, the next one's a G. It took them, like, years, days to figure out, like, painstakingly. Um, the, uh, so we've come a really long way since the dawn of genetic sequencing when the discovery of a single gene took months or even years. And as I was just mentioning, this cartoon illustrates that challenge. The scientists are falling over themselves for happiness with um, discovering the next molecule in a DNA sequence. That kind of thing is completely automated now. And um, uh, performing, we perform billions of sequencing reactions in parallel that allow us to process a whole cancer genome in minutes to hours. Um, it does not take years anymore. When technology outperforms Moore's Law, we should pay attention. So Moore's Law is responsible for the joke you may have heard about computers. You buy a new computer or iPhone, take it home, and as soon as you finish unpacking it, you see an advertisement for a new computer that is cheaper and faster. Um, so sequencing technology outperforms Moore's Law, which uh, is all by itself something that we should set up and pay attention to. Um, Dr. Craig Ventner's genome, cost the f his was the first genome to be completely sequenced, is estimated to have cost around $70 million. Um, today you can sequence a whole genome for about $8,000, and you can do targeted sequencing, which is uh, a smaller subset of, you know, if, if we say the entire genome, is, as Julie was talking about, well, we know that actually maybe 500 or even 1,000 genes are responsible for the majority of cancers. We can just look at those 1,000 genes, and you know what? That costs five, six, seven dollars $700. It's much, much cheaper. Um, so back to my patient. So this very sick patient was receiving world-class uh, UCSF diagnostic workup, we did this genomic analysis of her tumor, and this was the aha moment that I had. So we sequenced her tumor's DNA, and there was this complex combination of genomic aberrations in her cancer-associated genes. The specific genes are not exactly important here. This is not um, something that I feel like you guys need to learn today, except for a few key points. What is important is to know that different cancer types are more or less likely to have certain kinds of cancer uh, of, um, of mutations. So 
BRCA2 is one I'm going to draw your attention to. P53 is another one I'm going to draw your attention to. And this one, um, lack of a KRAS mutation. So it turns out pancreatic cancer almost pathognomonically, which is to say almost every single pancreatic cancer you sequence has a KRAS mutation, whereas ovarian cancer very rarely has a KRAS mutation. So that all by itself um, uh, would make you think, gosh, that would be very strange for pancreatic cancer not to have that mutation. Whereas this P53 mutation, which is actually a pretty common mutation in cancer in general, this is present in almost every single ovarian cancer. And the combination of P53, SOX2, CCDN3, BRCA2, that is starting to look a lot more like an ovarian cancer than a pancreatic cancer. So there are ways to figure out how likely a tumor is to originate from one organ or another. You can look at just a single gene, can compare KRAS, not very likely in ovarian cancer, very likely in pancreatic cancer. But you can do this um, in um, now that they have sequenced essentially every single tumor type, um, everything from thyroid cancer, brain cancer, pediatric cancers, blood cancers. Um, these have all been sequenced, and all of this pu- data is publicly available. So for laboratories like my lab, you can collect all of this data, and then you can say, okay, I have an unknown sample, and I'm going to compare it to all of the other things um, that have been sequenced. It's well more than 20,000 tumors types have been, 20,000 tumors in general have been sequenced and that are publicly available. And you can discriminate between the unknown cancer and compare it to the other cancers that you do know something about and say, which one does this look like? Um, so um, this was part of the, the project that I worked on where we assembled this cancer genome data from over 9,000 tumor samples and 30 different tumor types. And we could determine that statistically, a patient who um, I described earlier was uh, 1,280 times more likely to have a diagnosis of ovarian cancer than a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Um, and we could ba- base that entirely on the um, abnormalities observed in her tumor genome. So I think this demonstrates the power of um, sequencing patients' tumors, um, especially in cases where you might have some, uh, you might need some clarity as to whether or not um, advanced cancer is coming from one organ or another. Um, There are many ways a cancer genome can be abnormal beyond single gene mutations, and I'm going to just really briefly touch upon this. So we talked about how you're born and there are mutations, and a mutation generally is thought to be a single base pair. Um, your T to your G or your A to your C, a single base pair has changed. And sometimes that mutation is actually called entire, is entirely silent. It has no effect whatsoever on the protein product that comes from that gene. Um, but sometimes, this is why we use now like to use the word pathologic variant, because a mutation that's silent, nobody cares about. It has no impact on the protein function, we don't care. But one that actually has an impact on the protein function is called a pathologic variant. Um, and there are other ways outside of mutations where, um, where the genome can be disorganized or, um, or mutated. In fact, you don't even have to mutate anything. You can just copy a portion of the gene a bunch of times, and suddenly, instead of having the appropriate dose of a protein, you have too much of a dose of a protein. Or you can delete portions of a gene, and instead now of having too, the right content, a quantity of a protein, you have too little. And so you don't have enough of a certain protein around to do a function that you needed to. And you can develop cancer that way. So um, the, uh, I just kind of wanted to introduce you to the idea that we're beginning to describe an understanding 
many characteristics of cancer that allows us for a more complete picture. The tall woman with the red hair is not quite as informative as the tall woman with red hair who lives in the Mission District in San Francisco and has a German shepherd and children under the age of five. It's just a much more descriptive kind of picture, um, and that's what we're doing in cancer. We're not just describing the mutation. We're also describing the context of that mutation. Um, So um, that... Um, kind of leads me to this idea, um, actually, and this is very appropriate for mini medical school because you should not graduate from mini medical school without hearing this phrase. Um, we are taught in medical school that if you hear hoofbeats, you should think of horses, not zebras. Um, and that is if a patient comes in with chest pain, your first thought is that they're having a heart attack. Your 15th thought, once you've, ruled out the, um, once you've ruled out the heart attack, is that they might have a weird variant form of a lymphoma or something that can rarely cause some kind of cancer, I mean, cause some kind of chest pain. So um, this is one of the ways that we're actually taught in medical school, and it's appropriate. It's the right way. We have to use these tools as diagnosticians to rule out the common things first and then proceed down the path of, okay, it's not that, so what are the less common things it could be? Okay, it's none of those less common things. What are the weird and rare things it could be? Um, and, and in the case of my patient, she did eventually get the correct diagnosis and the correct treatment. Um, and some of our clinicians, I've already said, the pathologists here sort of shook their head and, and poo-pooed the pathologists at the other hospital who didn't do the workup exactly as they would have and would have arrived at an ovarian cancer diagnosis earlier. Um, but I don't actually fault the initial diagnostic evaluation. Um, there's a woman who has jaundice and she's lost some weight, and her scan shows a pancreatic mass. Of course you think of pancreas cancer. That's exactly what you're supposed to think of. But um, we're in the age of personalized medicine, and so that means we should be able to identify even the zebras, even if we're being presented with someone who looks like a horse and is actually a zebra. Um, and, And that allows us to offer them individualized and timely treatment. And you know what? That really matters to the patient, and it matters to their family. Um... So um, the last thing I wanted to just point out, I didn't make a, a specific slide to this, but you know, her tumor had this BRCA2 mutation in it. And one of the things that this prompts us to wonder in an ovarian cancer diagnosis specifically is, is this mutation only in her tumor or is it also in her germline? Was it something she was born with? Because a BRCA2 mutation affects not only the patient and how we think about her treatment, and it is actually completely explains why she responded in such a miraculous way to the carboplatin drug because we know from our from research that patients who have ovarian cancer and who have were born with a BRCA2 mutation that they respond beautifully in general to carboplatin. Um, but it also matters to her family. She has three sisters, two daughters, and those family members are going to be making are going to now potentially be able to avoid having an ovarian cancer diagnosis themselves because of some decisions that they might make about their ovaries. Not to mention, BRCA2, is, as um, you will hear, um, predisposes people to breast cancer. And so then we have different surveillance protocols for patients who have this diagnosis um, that allows us to keep a closer eye on them and potentially either diagnose breast cancer early or prevent breast cancer altogether. 
So um, this brings me to kind of the end of this portion of the thing. We, you know, the hope and the promise of understanding um, tumor genomes is that we learn more and more each day and understand each individual patient's um, unique situation, not only their unique um, germline mutations, which we're learning more and more about, but also for the patients who do develop cancer, we understand uniquely what is wrong with their particular tumor and can, instead of just using our um, sledgehammers of surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, we can potentially think about more targeted treatments that have fewer toxicities and also still allow people to live longer. So with that, um, I would like to introduce to you my patient, uh, Diane Roth, who's here with us tonight, um, who um, I think has a very um, common, at least common in my world, perspective on um, how um, her uh, cancer diagnosis affected herself and also her daughter, and um, her daughters, I should say, her family in general. Um, And so I want to invite Diane up here to talk to us a little bit about that. And she's here with her daughter, too. Yes. Hi. I need to see you. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Make sure you just talk in the microphone so that the... Hi. How are you? So that everybody can hear you. Okay? Okay. Ooh, that light is bright. (laughs) Um, I just want to maybe step two little steps back from the bad news. Yes. Um, On September 4th, 2015... Um, I had a CAT scan that revealed multiple masses in my abdomen and pelvis. I can't even say abdomen. Um, There were no cancer cells prior to that in my paracentesis fluid or in my pelvic uh, ultrasound. So um, the CT showed it in all of its glimmering lights Uh, by September 5th. So that was the 4th. The 5th. I weaseled my way into UCSF um, emergency, and on the 10th, I had my first meeting with the wonderful Dr. Chapman. She was attentive, she was interested and reassuring, and she was clear about the path ahead. September 17th, I got royally debulked by her adroit fingers and, uh, and her team, and my family was getting a little nervous in the seventh hour of surgery. Um, and I spent eight days at the famous UCSF Mission Bay Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> which is way more expensive than the Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> um, with a corner room from the sixth floor looking out on the bay. On the 26th, 2016 of October, I had chemo. And after that, a PET scan showed no discernible cancer cells. My CA125 was wonderfully low. We're all happy, jumping up and down, cancer-free, remission. Oh, yeah. Then there was genetic counseling, which I totally, you know, of course, it's part of the protocol, but I, I don't have any cancer really in my family. So when I got the call that I tested positive for the inherited gene mutation in the BRCA2 gene, I I was bummed out majorly. It was like somebody now suddenly rained on my parade, or hailed on my parade. And um, I didn't really understand how 
what all that meant, except as I learned, then I thought, wow, this really is a bummer because now I have to have my kids tested. So my three biological kids were tested, and Katie won the door prize. (laughs) So I might just have you say a few words about what that's meant to you. I mean, I felt terribly guilty. You know, they used to kill the messenger that brought bad news. I felt like the bad messenger, you know? And yet, well, I won't go there yet, but go ahead, Katie. Can you do this without crying? Uh, yeah. Um, I, maybe. <laughs> um, it was harder news for her than me because, you know, I'm old and she's young and... It's one of the first questions I always ask, which is, I think it must be hard. I asked you, I know I asked you, how are your, ki- how are your girls doing? Um, and I just imagine, I have a sister, and I imagine if this was a conversation that we had to have, it just must feel in some ways unfair if you're the carrier, and then also unfair if you've, if you've somehow escaped. I don't know. Yeah. What was it like with you and your sister? I think everyone kind of got their results before I did, <laughs> so I p- kind of was prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and me and my mom have a lot of similarities, which I'm grateful for, we except did, for this one. We did get some good genes, too. <laughs> yeah, so I, I kind of was um, preparing for the worst, and um, I think that helped me like get the results and so I didn't really freak out but I also kind of felt bad for my sister probably felt worse <laughs> yeah Chelsea said she felt she felt guilty that she was negative you know I mean yeah. that kind of weird yeah, yeah that's a weird thing well, and then the survivor's guilt right yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but also I think you know I just kind of saw my mom go through it and we were kind of on the t- the we were it was like life was kind of back to normal and it was you know, like you made it through and look at her. She's She looks great. Yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, it's not the end of the world. And, you know, like the fact that I, I'm finding this out now when there's all these medical, you know, advances and I'm going to have the opportunity to kind of be proactive, I feel grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a um, term in the literature I know, Julie knows this term called previvor. So there's the survivor, which um, the further that Diane gets out from her treatment, um, the more, you know, we call her, she's had a remission, and we're all going to knock wood and pray to God that that remission lasts as long as possible, um, and forever would be a great, a great um, length of time for me. Um, but there's a, there is a time when you get to be a survivor. There are um, patient advocacy around survivors of breast cancer and survivors of ovarian cancer, um, make no mistake, you know, she, we call it a debulking surgery for a reason. It's a horrible word. Um, it is a huge surgery, and the chemotherapy that comes after it is no joke. Um, your, la- your body changes in ways that um, are permanent. And so there is something to survive in terms of that treatment. Um, but there is this term called previvor, which is, you know, you haven't, undergone anything yet, but there is the psychological burden of knowing um, that you are at risk for certain kinds of diseases or cancers, and um, that, you know, you do have to weigh um, the preventative measures that you might take related to that, 
um, with the um, life that you have to live. Um, so just to be put a really fine point on it, for women who have a BRCA mutation, we the NCCN recommends um, removal of their ovaries and fallopian tubes, which is surgical castration, between the ages of 35 and 40. Um, that is our only prevention for ovarian cancer right now. Um, so um, I'll just speak personally. I had my first baby seven months ago. I was uh, 39. Yeah, 39 years old. So um, there are a lot of women who are not at all ready to um, have, forget, you know, menopause, but just in terms of their families. Um, we have our babies later these days. So, um, so there are a lot of, of issues that otherwise healthy women are now having to sort of think about with respect to their health um, and our um, ability now to detect these. It's fantastic. We can all jump in, up and down and say we are preventing um, Chelsea from having an ovarian cancer like her mom, but there are additional issues that we have to think about with respect to her health now if we're going to go in and do a surgical procedure, which is a pretty aggressive way to, um, to prevent cancer. So, Katie. Katie, yeah. I'm okay. so sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. But it's funny because on that note, <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, it's okay. Um, so when I found this out, so I have a child, he's two and a half, and we were, like right now, or in the last kind of six months or a year, we've been trying for a second, which would, you know, I was like, let me, let's go for one more. We started late in life because of fertility issues, and um, we actually um, kind of went through the IVF process recently, and so there's this whole another set of questions and things that I have to answer and talk to people about. Um, one is like, if we do this, if the IVF and you get, you know, the embryos and you, do you test them? And if you test them mm -hmm. and they have it, what do you do? And then, you know, if you had an option of having a boy or a girl, would you just put the boy in you because girls are more likely to get the brat. So it's like this whole nother level mm -hmm. of decisions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I met with someone after I found out just to kind of like, okay, I'm supposed to go talk to someone locally. Mm -hmm. So I met with um, a genetic counselor locally at a, a Stanford hospital. Um, but, and they kind of, you know, they, I didn't know what to expect or what they would tell me, but it's really, um, I came in there with so much information that, I felt like they ran down the whole thing, but I kind of knew it already. And then they really just were like, well, what do you want to do? Here's things you can do, what's your, you know, and based on my personality, based on the fact that I want to have some control and I don't ever want to get cancer, I was like, I'm going to go as aggressive as possible. I've got me, like, take up boobs, <laughs> everything. Like, I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's, I want to have one more baby. And then in two years, let's do it all. And so that's kind of where my head's at. It's a little, I'm super scared for my husband of going yeah. into early menopause. But um, <laughs> but then there's like this baby thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot. It's, it's a lot and it's really common. And I think that's why um, there's a ton of advocacy from doctors who do what I do to um, uh, fight for the rationale for genetic counselors because... These um, conversations happen, they change over the course of our lifetime, they change over the course of what considerations we have in terms of our families, whether we're done with that or not, and 
um, fears about menopause and possibilities for menop- treatment of menopause, and it goes on and on and on. Um, but genetic counselors are hugely important to um, the work that we do. And you know, just to give you guys a couple of numbers, so um, we're you know we're talking about ovarian cancer here. Ovarian cancer, about 20% of ovarian cancers are thought to be um, um, related or a result of a hereditary predisposition, something that someone was born with. Not all 20% of them are BRCA related. That number is probably somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. But um, we're discovering other genes that are uh, predisposing people to um, ovarian cancer in particular, um, which means that now every, you know, this is why Diane was kind of telling that part about her story where, you know, she goes through this huge surgery and then chemotherapy and then, oh, right, I forgot, Dr. Chapman told me I have to go do this thing. Um, but we, um, it's now recommended that every woman who has an ovarian cancer diagnosis goes and talks to the genetic counselors and um, gets considered for testing. Um, of course, you don't have to get that testing. Sometimes that um, is part of the discussion. But it's because the, the predisposition to, that, um, to carrying a gene that predisposes the family to an ovarian cancer risk is so high um, in in that group of patients, so I would say one thing in closing that um, the upside is my husband often quotes Socrates, who said, "The unexamined life is not worth living," and I would say, "And you might not live that long." You know, so there is power in knowledge, and uh, as a result of my diagnosis, I talked to my uh, cousin, who's on my mom's side, where the, this has come from. Um, and she's been, she was positive, mm-hmm. and one of her daughters was. Wow. They never would have known that had I not kind of encouraged them. them. So mm-hmm. that's a real positive. Yeah. Um, well, in medicine, we definitely feel like knowledge is power, and um, and it's only when we know something that we can potentially prevent it. And my hope, and the research that I do, is that we can find ways of preventing it that are not so life-changing, that um, they um, require a surgery for a woman who's otherwise young and healthy and um, puts her through menopause. So we're working on Hurry your behalf. We'll give you a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, of course. I think we should just pause just one minute here. I know we, we prefer to leave questions generally to the end, but I want to give, before I send you guys off, I want to give um, the audience a couple minutes for questions. I'm going to just repeat the question for the uh, TV on it, audience. So um, the question is, was there ever a point at which um, uh, Diane didn't think about uh, finding out whether or not she was a genetic carrier? As well as her kids. And as well as her children. Uh, well for me, kids. no, because I assumed that I didn't know that there was much cancer. And I just assumed that I would do this <laughs> to make you happy or just, you know, part of the protocol. So I was, oh, no. like, shocked. So there was not a time when I, and then my kids should know, right? I mean, that would, I mean, they could make their own decision, but I certainly needed to encourage them. So, yeah. I think for me, I thought about, I kind of consulted my friends, which is not always the best idea, but um, I, <laughs> I kind of threw it out there in the universe of, like, should I find out, like, what's the point? Then I'm going to be dreading it and, like, the quality of my life and, and, she definitely encouraged me to examine my life. So, um, no, I think I, I, there was a small little bit of me that 
felt like, hmm, let me put this off. But I think um, in general, yeah, uh, I was pretty set on finding out. And one way to frame this sometimes, which um, I, Julie can potentially address a little bit more of this, is um, we can tell whether people will have Huntington's disease, for example. But there is not right now a common test for Huntington's disease because there's no known way to prevent it. Some mm. people insist on getting it done, especially if they have it in their family. And, but in terms of the general population, it's not something that we recommend. And so recommending something for which there is no way to intervene mm -hmm. um, is a, a little bit different than when we actually have some strategies. However much we may not like those strategies, um, that we, um, can, we do have some preventative cancer measures that we can take. Those are two great questions. So um, uh, I'm going to answer those unless you know them off the top of your head. <laughs> that's a test for you. I have that printout, but that's yeah. about it. <laughs> well, I was going to say my mother did not die of cancer. Right. She died at 88 with another issue. My grandmother, who died when I was two, had female issues. Now, mm -hmm. that's 70 years ago, so mm -hmm. they're not talking about it. Who knows but she died. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she is probably... Right. She's probably... Breast or ovarian. Yeah, yeah. So you're getting to two important concepts, which I have a feeling I think uh, Julie is going to talk about. But gene, um, so the predisposition to a cancer, meaning if you look at all BRCA1 mutation carriers in their lifetime, how many of them are going to get breast cancer? The number is 60%-ish. Yeah. Um, and for ovarian cancer, it's somewhere between 30 40%. Yes? Yes. One, yes. So um, for BRCA2, the um, ovarian cancer risk is lower, somewhere between 10 and 15%. Um, so that means that it's, you know, not a, it's not 100%. And what, and what Diane's talking about a little bit is a concept we call gene penetrance, which is depending, um, we know that having the gene means that you are predisposed to a cancer. But we also know that where that gene is mutated, and this is the part we don't understand as well, and potentially other factors in her genetic code that we don't understand well, may mediate what kind of cancer is going to be seen predominantly in a family. So there are some um, patients, families who have BRCA1 cancers, and they have a lot of melanoma or pancreas or some other sort of very less common BRCA-related cancer. Nobody ever got ovarian cancer that we can detect. So maybe the penetrance for that gene in that family has more risk in the pancreas or in, in the skin than it does in the ovary. So um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Okay, one more in the back. Yes, so Julie's talk will definitely get into the ways that we are looking beyond just the BRCA1 and 2 genes, and there are many more genes now that are tested and are known to be associated with increased risk for ovarian cancer. In your, uh, so the question is about um, the patient, the, the, the audience member has BRCA2 mutation, and as far as you know, your mom does not have one, and so you're wondering where you got it. Is that correct? So um, there's two possibilities. One is that you got it from your father's side. Um, the other possibility, uh, which is more uncommon, and I actually don't know how frequently this happens, but there is such a thing as a de novo mutation. So when Julie was talking about egg meets sperm, and we expect that egg to be the pristine genetic code and the sperm to have the pristine genetic code, um, 
Well, actually, in the process of those eggs maturing from somewhere between you being an embryo to being 30-ish years old, it is possible for one of these genes in our genetic in the egg to acquire a mutation. If it's a mutation that is incompatible with life, egg meets sperm, you have a miscarriage. If it's a mutation that is a BRCA2 mutation, that embryo will go on to have a you know healthy growth, and we will only detect it. It's called a de novo mutation, a brand new mutation in that patient potentially later in their life. Um, so um, I hope that helps answer that question for you. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to turn things over. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. I'm going to turn things over to Julie. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I just was reflecting as I was listening to Diane and Katie and, and Dr. Chapman and all of you. Um, so when you are a doctor, you can go to a party and explain that you're a doctor. And people have some idea. They really don't, but they kind of, they've heard of it before. If you're a genetic counselor and you go to a party and you say what you do, people usually don't know. Um, but I think that, that our conversation so far really, I think, melds what I think being a genetic counselor is. So there's a part of it that is about genetics and about science and about medicine, but there's a part of it that is about people and, and, and how can we bring that science to people um, and how can we not only give that, that information but um, support them and I will say having um, been in this work for almost 15 years now how much you know I've learned um, from the people that I work with um, about these really tough decisions and how they um, you know how they frame how we look at a lot of different things, how one piece of genetic information can sort of cascade into all these different parts of our lives. Um, so I, I think this is very appropriate way to bring this to you in the mini medical school to really think about both the science but how it affects people. Um, I, did, I had a thought sort of about your question about when someone has a mutation and we don't see it in the family. If we have tested both parents and we don't see it, then certainly it could be, and this is extremely rare, um, a de novo mutation, but a lot of times it's, um, as Dr. Chapman said, if we've tested one parent and they don't have it, it's probably the other parent. I will say that we can't assume, and this goes back to what we were talking about and the concept of penetrance, the concept of risk, is having a genetic um, inherited mutation doesn't cause cancer. So we may see, um, as, as Diane just described, you know, a, a mother who lives to be 88 and doesn't have ever get cancer because of this. So just because we don't see the cancer um, doesn't tell us what someone's genetics are. We really have to go in and do that genetic test. So there are times where we see families where we just haven't seen the cancer. Um, but I don't want to get too much into individual questions. You guys actually um, set us up very well here. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the nitty-gritty of what it means when we say inherited cancer risk, um, about what genetic tests are available, and that was one of the questions. Um, if, if we have time, I can talk a little bit about you know how we use that information, but I think a lot of that's actually going to get covered in, in subsequent lectures as well. Um, so this is uh, sort of the starting point for every conversation I have about inherited cancer. Um, and we tend to say that inherited mutations, so mutations that you get from a mother or father, are, are fairly rare. 
Um, so if we took all the people who have, for example, breast cancer, about 75% of those cases are completely sporadic. So all of the mutations that are in that cancer happen during someone's life, and they have nothing to do with um, other people in the family. Only about 5 to 10% of things like breast cancer or um, endometrial cancer are what we call um, hereditary, meaning there is a single genetic mutation that we can track through the family that's causing this cancer. There certainly are other things, um, and I think Jocelyn alluded to this, to say we know that having... Um, that there's often not just one thing that causes cancer, but a combination of different factors. So we, someone who has a mutation, some of them will get breast cancer, some of them will get ovarian cancer, some of them will get neither um, because of other factors. And so some of these other factors, whether they're genetic or lifestyle, are what we're talking about in that middle group of people who may be at risk due to a combination of, of things. Um, as Jocelyn mentioned, even though we say that over, um, inherited mutations are rare, they're more common in certain groups of people, and that includes people who have ovarian cancer. So about 20% of women with ovarian cancer have some type of inherited risk factor. Um, uterine or um, endometrial cancer falls into about 5%. I, Dr. Chen gave me a heads up that there were some questions about sarcoma um, last week, and that is a relatively rare cancer, and we don't have good numbers around how often those are inherited. Um, cervical cancer, which is the other you know, common gynecologic cancer, is, is, has minimal inherited risk factors. Um, so even though things, you know, whether however you want to slice it, it's rare or not rare, um, I think, and again, this conversation that led into um, my part of the talk really illustrates that this is very important. So if we can find those people who are at high risk, um, we can make a difference. So if the difference between being having a BRCA1 mutation and having a 40% chance of getting ovarian cancer compared to the average woman on the street who has a 1% or 2% chance, and we want to treat those people differently. Um, even people who've had cancer, and this is a common misconception, people will say, well, I've already had cancer, I don't need to do genetic testing. Some people do it just to humor their doctors, but I also think um, we, it's important to know if we, can, we want people to be survivors, and if they're survivors of one cancer, we want to know if they're at risk for something else so that we can help prevent that or catch it early. And so there really is an opportunity here. Um, I think absolutely, I mean, these are the conversations I have with people every day, that it is... Um, Despite all of these things being true, it is hard to walk in as a young, healthy person and sign up to get this information. I think the other thing that I remind myself, and I, after 15 years, still have to sort of like say these little mantras to myself before we, you know, sit down to go over positive genetic test results, is um, doing the test, we have this feeling that doing the test has made something happen, um, when in fact, when we're testing, we're testing for something that someone you know, was had from the moment of conception and was born with. Um, and what we're doing with that moment of testing is absolutely um, opening up a lot of complex decisions and a lot of complex emotions, but also opening the key to that opportunity. Um, so there's a little quote there, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that's what we really, you know, even though I absolutely agree that it's a bigger decision to go and get this testing um, when someone does not have cancer. I think that's also the place where we can make the biggest difference. Um, so my job as a genetic counselor is to take those three groups of people who may have sporadic cancers, highly genetic cancers, or people who fall somewhere in the middle, figure out where they fall on this spectrum and what they should be doing with that information. Um, I think, again, you know, is as a trying to get very... 
address this information on a high level. You will hear people casually say that somebody has a gene or they don't, and as you and hopefully have gathered through all of our talk, we all have the same set of genes. What we're talking about is some people who have a, are born with a mutation in one of these genes. If you want to get very technical, you can use the pathogenic variant. Um, so this is the same picture I showed a little bit earlier, um, at, actually back at the beginning, but it illustrates an important principle because I think you can memorize a lot of facts and and. Um, statistics, but if you actually understand the concepts below it, it really make, it all makes sense, hopefully. Um, so we know that most people, and that's what the top slide is showing, most people are born with cells that have no mutations in these cancer-related genes. Um, and as we know, they get older, they're exposed to things, they may accumulate enough mutations to develop cancer. Um, when we talk about people who are born with a mutation that they inherited from one of their parents, um, again, that one mutation is not enough to cause cancer. Other things have to happen. Sometimes they will never happen or they won't happen for decades. Um, but what this sort of, uh, I'm trying to illustrate here by the way these are lined up, is this explains why in families with inherited cancer we see cancer at younger ages, because there are less steps that additional steps that need to happen before someone develops cancer. Um, it explains why, unfortunately, we sometimes see people who have one cancer develop a second completely separate cancer, what we call multiple primary cancers, because this one mutation is present in their body head to toe, so you could develop cancer in one breast and 10 years later develop cancer in the other breast, because these susceptible cells are everywhere. Um, it also explains the incomplete penetrance we were talking about, the fact that some people will be born with this mutation um, and never get cancer because if these additional things never happen or if the other defense mechanisms that our bodies have to try and um, either kill off those cells or repair those cells can step in, then maybe some people will never develop cancer. And that you know, is, is also explained by this uh, model. Um, and the last thing that it explains or the next slide will explain what is dominant inheritance. So how does this get passed down through families? So we describe the inheritance of the majority of cancer syndromes, including um, the things we've been talking about tonight, as dominant. So we actually have, because of that egg and the sperm meeting, two copies of all of these genes. You have two copies of BRCA1, two copies of BRCA2, two copies of all of the other genes we're talking about tonight. And what this um, slide is showing is that the, the two copies, and the blue is the one that is working properly, the white is the one that has the mutation, and when this father and mother have children, the mom is go always going to pass on a blue copy because they all look the same, and the dad's going to give some kids the white one and some kids the blue one. So this explains why, how it gets passed down through families, and um, Diane and Katie were describing how, you know, one of, some of the other, some of your sisters did not test positive, and so we, this is explaining that. So as I said, I could have started with this slide of you know what do we look for and what are the signs of inherited cancer, and but I think I wanted to start with why it is. So just to summarize, we do tend to see earlier ages of cancer than other people. We often will see family history because of this mutation is being passed down. Um, we do sometimes see people who develop more than one cancer. Um, rare cancers can be a clue, so male breast cancer, um, fallopian tube cancers. We know that um, inherited mutations are more common in certain populations than others, and primarily that is the European Jewish population, although certainly we see these mutations in other populations, and certainly being Jewish is not in and of itself a major risk factor, but that is one of the things we look at. 
Um, and there are actually computer models that help us assess, you know, what are the chances given a certain family history that something that there's an inherited mutation. So um, overall, you know, I think almost everyone has some cancer in their family, and I don't want everyone to immediately, you know, have alarm bells going off in their head because most cancers are not inherited. But if any of those signs are present, um, and including, as Jocelyn mentioned, any case of ovarian cancer, um, then we do feel like it's worth taking a look because of uh, at the genetics to see if we can make a difference. Um, how is this testing different from the testing that Jocelyn was talking about? She was talking about testing of cancer tumor cells. And when we do genetic testing for inherited mutations, we actually want to look at healthy cells. And so we'll usually do it on a blood sample or saliva sample. Um, it's also different in that the type of testing that Jocelyn was describing um, is done for people who have cancer to better understand what type of cancer they have, how to treat it. We do testing um, in people who have cancer, but also in people who are healthy because we want to try um, and prevent cancer. It's really important, and I've said it before, but I want to emphasize again that having that genetic risk factor is just a risk factor. It's not a diagnosis of cancer. It may never result in cancer, and actually knowing about that information could change the outcome. Um, and as, as Jocelyn said, that there are things, genetic conditions, where we can't change the outcome. This is one where we can, and absolutely it's not easy to do. Um, we are looking for better ways to do that, but I think um, that what we have already is, is better than not having those tools. Um, and it's also what's different about our testing is that it can affect other people in the family. Um, there are many tests, so this was one of the questions, you know, what types of tests are out there? Um, very much because of what Jocelyn explained, that the technology to do genetic testing has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier and easier. This has resulted in a proliferation of tests, and there are these vary greatly, as, as all these other areas, um, in quality and scope. So, and there's a couple of sort of news things that I pulled out. One is some of you may know, have heard of a company called 23andMe and how several years ago the FDA actually um, asked them to stop providing medical information because of the lack of um, sort of clear use of that information and the potential for misuse of that information. Um, another article that was very relevant to the area of inherited breast and ovarian cancer was about um, how there was a patent on BRCA1 and 2 for many years until 2013, and when that patent um, was struck down by the Supreme Court, the number of companies offering BRCA1 and 2 testing you know, exploded. And that has resulted in many good things, um, I think making the test more accessible, but it also requires um, a certain level of discrimination to tell which labs are good and which ones aren't. Um, even among high-quality tests, we as genetic counselors will look to try and make sure we're picking the right test, as Jocelyn described. You know, there, out of your thousands of genes, there are several hundred that are cancer-related, and probably only about a hundred that we know are inherited, um, include inherited mutations. And so, our jobs are to, as a genetic counselor, is to help pick the right test for the people in front of us. The next two slides I really enjoy showing because this is a real slide from a real, a real figure from a real paper from 1998, shortly after BRCA1 and 2 were discovered. Um, and it showed the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, that most cancers are sporadic, a small amount of them are hereditary. And then it said of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, um, there was BRCA1 as the main gene where we find mutations, BRCA2, and then the other genes. And this is a real figure from a paper from 2000. 
11, um, which shows what all those other genes are. So we actually still agree that of, in among ovarian cancer patients, when we find a mutation, the majority are in BRCA1. The second most common gene is BRCA2, but now we know what a lot of these other genes are. Um, and yes, we are able to test for them. Um, the, uh, the caveat that I'm about to um, come up with is you know, our ability to test partly um, the caveats with these new tests are the varying quality and scope of the test, but partly what do we do with the answers? So our ability to do genetic testing has actually outpaced our ability to use the results of genetic testing. So um, we can get lots of information. We don't always know exactly what to do with it. Um, even with BRCA1 and 2, which are the most well-known, as you've heard, um, in the world of ovarian cancer, we know a lot, and we still have a lot to learn. Um, so you can only imagine for some of these genes that we've only known about for a short period of time. Um, Nonetheless, this is sort of where we stand right now, is we do offer what we call multi-gene panels um, to most of the people who come in our office these days, as we do want to look at a broad number of genes, either to find the answer for this family, to rule out as much as we can, um, and those are, are good things. Um, but with increasing information comes increasing complexity. Um, even a smart man like Albert Einstein you know, said, told us, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Um, and that is certainly how I feel about genetic testing in the last three years. Um, but also I agree, the more I realize I don't know, the more I want to learn. And I think that's where we are now. And um, so some of the things that can come out of these newer tests um, that are challenges, um, not, I think, challenges that make us feel like we shouldn't do it, but challenges that we want to be really honest with our patients about when we go into this, um, and also reasons to um, work with experts when you do this type of testing. So this is not a good DIY sort of thing. Um, so one of those types of complexity are variants of unknown significance, um, which I will discuss in a moment. Um, but there are also, when we do a panel of genes that has, let's say, 50 genes on it, some of these genes have high risks, like BRCA1 and 2. And as much as knowing that someone is at high risk is hard, at least we know that if they're making tough decisions, like going for breast MRIs or considering surgery, that there's a real clear benefit to doing that. Um, but some of these genes don't have very high risk. How do we treat a woman who has a 15 or 20% chance of breast cancer compared to a woman who has 10%? Are we going to not screen her and not do enough? Are we going to over-screen her and, and lead to other kinds of problems? Is she going to go and have surgery when she didn't really need it? Um, so I think that these are some of the hazards of doing these panels or things that we should be aware of. Um, so there are tests that even though we get a clear, genetic testing is technically very good, but as I said, it's really our ability to interpret that information that's still evolving. Um, we sometimes use the term uninformative. They're not truly uninformative, but a test, there are tests that don't give us all the answers. So most of the time in my work, we're testing people because we have a real suspicion. There's a person with early breast cancer. There's a person with ovarian cancer. There's someone who's had both colon cancer and uterine cancer. There's real question of what's going on here. If the test comes back normal and they have a really strong family history, that can be um, an unclear result. And that can be a case where maybe we need to be um, having somebody talk to Jocelyn or talk to an expert about doing some extra prevention even if they don't find something on a genetic test. Variants of unknown significance um, so you heard the term pathogenic variant. That means um, 
that there is a form of the gene that definitely isn't working. All you have to do, and you mentioned San Francisco earlier, is look around a room in San Francisco, and you already get a clue that there is a lot of genetic variation between people. Most of the genetic variation between people does not cause disease. Um, so genetic variants, so differences in the genetic code get classified as pathogenic, meaning they cause disease, benign, meaning they don't cause disease, they're just some of the normal background variation between people, and sometimes we don't know. So if we see a genetic code that hasn't been seen very many times before, um, that will get read out as a variant of unknown significance. Um, these are generally rare sequence changes where there's insufficient or conflicting information, and we can't tell whether it's pathogenic or benign. Um, so these are types of families where, again, just having the genetic test result doesn't tell us a lot, but talking to your doctors, talking to a genetic counselor can help put that in context. Um, and then, as I mentioned, even when we find a mutation, um, in some of these genes, we don't have a lot of information, or the risks may be low, and it's kind of unclear how we need to act on those. So, yes, genetic testing's gotten a lot better, and yes, at UCSF, we generally are doing big genetic tests, but that doesn't mean that the answers are always, um, you know, clear-cut. The last part I wanted to touch on was what we, you know, how we work with families that are at higher risk. And this is an example of a family tree, um, which I believe Dr. Chen has decided is your homework, <laughs> is to draw a family tree. Um, the circles are women and the squares are men. Um, and this is a family tree where there's a young woman who's only 45 who has ovarian cancer. And when we trace through her family, we find out that she has an aunt on her dad's side. This is her dad and her mom who had ovarian cancer and a grandmother with breast cancer and a cousin with breast cancer. Um, I think I saw some surprised faces when Jocelyn mentioned that a mutation could come from the father's side of the family, and I think that's a really important take-home message as well, is that um, these genes uh, that we're talking about are actually the same in men and women um, on the genetic level. They may play out differently from a medical standpoint, but from um, when you get down to the genes, they're the same. Um, so this is an example of a family that has multiple cases of cancer, early onset cancers, and that combination of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and and uh, that this question came up already. The risks can be considerably higher. Um, we do see a range now, and I think we generally think 80% is probably on the high side. This is um, an older slide. But breast cancer risk can be up to 80%. People who've had breast cancer once can get it again. Um, ovarian cancer risks are higher with BRCA1 than BRCA2. Um, men can get breast cancer. Um, and as Jocelyn mentioned, there are some other rare manifestations of BRCA1 and 2 that um, don't happen as often but are things that we look out for. Um, the other, and I'm going through this quickly because I, I know there will be subsequent talks on how we, on surgery and prevention, um, but the other most common syndrome involving gynecologic cancer that we see is something called Lynch syndrome. Um, it's caused by mutations in a set of genes which all are repair genes. So remember that, you know, these genes are there to help fix things. If they're not working, then they can't fix the other mistakes. And as Jocelyn mentioned last week, we heard that, you know, this ability to accumulate mutations is really what causes cancer. Um, in these families, the, you know, breast and ovarian is kind of the classic combination for BRCA1 and 2. The classic combination for Lynch syndrome is colon cancer and endometrial cancer, although we actually see a pretty broad range of cancers, including ovarian cancer, um, urinary tract cancers, um, like kidney cancers and um, ureter cancers and bladder cancers, and also some others. And so, again, an example of a family tree where you might see endometrial cancer in a young woman who's sister who had colon cancer and their father had colon cancer all at young ages. 
Um, so those are the types of things that we're looking for. Um, and again, it's not just a matter of giving bad news, but really giving news that we can do something with. Um, Many of you, although I learned recently with my brother-in-law, not all of you, um, were familiar with the fact that Angelina Jolie, <laughs> he, yeah, it was sort of an odd conversation. <laughs> I thanked Gattaca and Angelina Jolie for making my job easier, and he said it was Uma Thurman and Gattaca, not Angelina Jolie. And I just sort of was like, well, yes, I see. I'm talking about two different things here. Um, <laughs> But Angelina Jolie came out sort of publicly a few years ago saying that she had a BRCA1 mutation. Um, and I think there was some misconception, again, among people in my social circles about what she was trying to say. She was not trying to say that everyone needs to have mastectomies or have their ovaries removed. I think what she was trying to say is it's important to be aware so we can take steps um, to, you know, if someone's at high risk. And so these include, and again, we'll go into them in, in future weeks, but um, they can be increased monitoring. So it could be doing breast MRIs. If you have Lynch syndrome, it could be colonoscopies. There are actually some medications that help lower risk. So birth control pills actually lower the risk of ovarian cancer. Um, a drug called tamoxifen can lower the risk of getting breast cancer. Um, and as Jocelyn mentioned, there are times where we do still talk about risk-reducing surgeries as an option, and that includes mastectomies. Um, for breast cancer risk, hysterectomies for endometrial cancer risk, um, and um, removing the tubes and ovaries, which is called salpingo-oophorectomy, um, which reduces ovarian cancer risk. So I think that, that we'll, we'll get more into those in other weeks. Um, so just in summary, for my part, I, you know, I think hereditary cancer is rare. So again, if you have cancer in your family, you don't have to assume that you're at high risk. Um, but if we see those certain signs in a family, identifying those families that are at higher risk really can give us an opportunity to do early detection and prevention and, and treatment, better treatment. Um, and those signs are early onset cancers, multiple people in a family, um, and in some cases, knowing people's ancestry. And when we do genetic testing these days, we do try to do big tests, but those come with, um, you know, the more you get, what did I say? The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Um, so that is one of the caveats. Um, and that there are people like Jocelyn and myself and, and our colleagues who can help people interpret that complex information. Um, the group that I work with is the Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program, um, and we've been around actually. So you mentioned BRCA1 was identified in 1994, BRCA2 was identified in 1995, and our program actually started in 1996. And um, we have a team of genetic counselors and doctors and researchers. We have a research database, um, and we do a lot of care for those families. We also have a new clinic now that started up. Um, our nurse practitioner, Callie Williams, um, and I and another genetic counselor work specifically with families that are at high risk to really provide um, coordinated care, and, and um, Dr. Chapman's very closely involved with a lot of research projects in that group. Um, these are some resources that you can look at if you're interested in reading more about inherited cancer. Gene Reviews has very good um, summaries of genetic conditions. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network is our source for guidelines on how to test and how to follow people. And this is our group. This is the Center for BRCA Research. UCSF also has a very patient-friendly um, resource called kintalk.org, which has information on inherited cancers. Um, and I finished with 
the homework for next week. Um, this is actually a really, um, was an initiative from the Surgeon General that started several years ago, but they have some tools on this website, um, and you can just do a search also for Surgeon General's um, like Family History Initiative in terms of what kinds of questions should you be asking your relatives and how can you collect that information. Um, so again, you know, we don't assume that everyone who has cancer in their family is at high risk, but if we can get these um, family histories collected, we can help find those people who may benefit from getting some more intensive care um, and monitoring versus other people. And so that's the end of sort of the formal part of our discussion, and I think we have the handouts there, but we can also, um, can also take questions. Take questions, yes. exactly. And the question is, you know, can we estimate how many people are not using, percentage of doctors who are not using genetic tests um, but doing more traditional treatments? And I think that's a good question for you. This would be, when we talk about treatment, we're talking again about the somatic or tumor mutations, not the inherited ones. Um, the uh, I think I spoke earlier about um, the big question is what to do with the information. And so um, right now there's, uh, at most of the university systems, including UCSF, there's something called a molecular tumor board where we look at the um, tumors that we've done sequencing on and that they, we have a clinical question about. So someone who... Um, Right now, we don't have a targeted treatment that's better for ovarian cancer than the standard of care, so what Diane um, got for her treatment. Um, but if um, a patient came and they had a recurrence or they had a, a challenging clinical situation, um, like the patient that I spoke to you about, then that's when the molecular tumor board gets together and talks about whether what kind of treatments we might think about offering. Um, and uh, a lot of times what that means is we repurpose a drug that we know targets a certain gene that has been tested in lung cancer, for example. And we know works in lung cancer, but has been tested sporadically or not very rigorously in ovarian cancer, for example. And we might repurpose that drug in that particular situation. Um, but that doesn't happen outside of uh, sort of research institutions because it's very investigational right now. The question is related to getting deceased medical records, and I don't have the first idea about how to do <laughs> so that. So we used to do this a Right. Yeah. So we used to do this a lot more um, when genetic testing, you know, this is all, everything is related. When genetic testing was very expensive and hard to get, we used to work very hard to make, find who should get that testing because it had to be sort of doled out very parsimoniously. Um, I still think it is valuable to get medical records, and I can explain why that is, but I also will say that we don't always require that the way we did 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. Um, the best way, so 1995, most medical records, like a, a doctor's chart, most of those have been destroyed. Um, but you can ask the hospital where someone was treated. For me as a genetic counselor, and you, we usually are looking for a pathology report that will describe the type of cancer. Um, <clears throat> short of that, so 20 years ago, you know, from 20 years ago, the, the most medical, medical records will be destroyed. Sometimes you can get information on someone who's passed away by getting a death certificate, um, and you can do that by applying to the county recorder's office where someone passed away. So if we know the county where they died, um, you can request a death certificate. And death certificates sometimes have a cause of death on them. They're only as good as the person who filled them out. So sometimes they will have a lot of detail. Sometimes they won't. Um, but I will also say that if, um, you know, if someone 
best understanding is that their family member had ovarian cancer. As I said, genetic testing has become easy enough and available enough that I would rather offer testing to that someone, that person, even if we, you know, aren't 100% sure and don't have a document, than to just let it go. Um, that, so that's a good point. So marginally, yes. Um, well, I guess there are actually many kinds of ovarian cancer. The most common kinds of ovarian cancer that we've been talking about um, are the ones that we think of with BRCA1 and 2. There are ones, more rare types of ovarian tumors that people have. Um, but again, I think in the absence of Get it. I think we can try and get those records either from a hospital or a death certificate, but without that information, if someone says their mother had ovarian cancer, my inclination today would be to say that's reason enough to, to consider genetic testing if that's what that person is interested in, regardless of whether we can pinpoint exactly what it was. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.